Our second reading this morning is full of Hebrew names. So, Jordan, do you want to do that one for us? Come on up. <laughs> All right, he's, he's going to read this as loud as he can. Uh, and I guess we got that and that. All right, thank you. Of course. So our second reading this morning is from Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 through 34. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites should make their camps around the meeting tent. Each division will have its own special flag, and everyone will camp near their group's flag. The flag of the camp of Judah will be on the east side, where the sun rises. The people of Judah will camp near its flag. The leader of the people of Judah is Nashon, son of Aminadab. There are 74,600 men in his division. The tribe of Issachar will camp next to the tribe of Judah. The leader of the tribe of Issachar is Nethanel, son of Zuar. There are 54,400 men in his division. The tribe of Zebulun will also camp next to the tribe of Judah. The leader of the tribe of Zebulun is Eliab, son of Helon. There are 57,400 men in his division. The total number of men in Judah's camp is 186,400. All these men are divided into their different tribes. Judah will be, on, will be the first group to move when the people travel from one place to another. The flag of Reuben's camp will be on the south of the holy tent. Each group will camp near its flag. The leader of the tribe of Reuben is Eleazar, son of Shedir. There are 46,500 men in his division. The tribe of Simeon will camp next to the tribe of Reuben. The leader of the tribe of Simeon is Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. There are 59,300 men in this division. The tribe of Gad will also camp next to the tribe of Reuben. The leader of the tribe of Gad is Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. There are 45,650 men in this division. The total number of men in all the divisions of Reuben's camp is 151,450. His camp will be the second group to move when the people travel from place to place. When the people travel, Levi's camp will move next. The meeting tent will be with them between the other camps. The people will make their camps in the same order that they move. The flag of the camp of Ephraim will be on the west side. The division of Ephraim will camp there. The leader of the tribe of Ephraim is Elishama, son of Amihud. There are 40,500 men in this division. The tribe of Manasseh will camp next to Ephraim's family. The leader of the tribe of Manasseh is Gamaliel, son of Pedajur. There are 40, mm, sorry, 32,200 men in this division. The tribe of Benjamin will also camp next to Ephraim's family. The leader of the tribe of Benjamin is Abaddon, son of Gideoni. There are 35,400 men in this division. The total number of men in Ephraim's camp is 108,100. They will be the third family to move when the people travel from one place to another. The flag of Dan's camp will be on the north side. The tribes of Dan will camp there. The leader of the tribe of Dan is Ahiazer, son of Amishadai. There are 62,700 men in this division. 
The people from the tribe of Asher will camp next to the tribe of Dan. The leader of the tribe of Asher is Pagael, son of Okran. There are 41,500 men in this division. The tribe of Naphtali will, camp, will also camp next to the tribe of Dan. The leader of the tribe of Naphtali is Ahira, son of Enon. There are 53,400 men in this division. There are 157,600 men in Dan's camp. They will be the last to move when the people of Israel move from place to place. Each group will have its own flag. So these were the Israelites. They were counted by families. The total number of Israelite men in the camps counted by divisions is 603,550. Moses obeyed the Lord and did not count the Levites with the other Israelites. So the Israelites did everything the Lord told Moses. Each group camped under its own flag, and everyone stayed with their own family and family group. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> I was so dreading reading that passage. <laughs> Thanks for being a good sport. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so our readings this morning uh, fell into two parts. The first part, which was uh, from Numbers chapter 1, talks about how the tribe of Levi is responsible for maintaining the tabernacle. Our, our translation calls it the tent of the agreement. The Levites are the ones who pack up the tent and move it when it's time to travel. And when they are camped, uh, they are the ones who are responsible for maintaining the tent. And no one else is allowed to touch the tent. And the Levites stand guard around the tent to keep anyone from touching it. We're told uh, that this is to protect the Israelites from the Lord's anger. Now, all of this has to do with the unapproachable holiness of Almighty God. Uh, part of that will change with the crucifixion of Jesus. When, you remember when the, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom, uh, allowing us free access into the Holy of Holies uh, through, through Jesus uh, himself. I felt like someone was standing there next to me. I was getting a little edgy, okay? The second part of our reading, the part that Jordan did for us, describes the arrangement of the camp of the Israelites. Remember, all of these Israelites, they've gotten out of Egypt, they've gone to Mount Sinai, they've received the law of God, and they're camped out there together, and God gives very specific instructions about how the camp is supposed to be organized. Here's the general principle that I want you to get, and here's the point of the sermon uh, at the center of God's people, all neatly arranged according to God's plan, at the center of God's people 
is the tabernacle where God is worshipped. The children of Israel are camped out in the wilderness where more than a million people are gathered. And at the very center of that tent city, at the very center of their lives, was the tabernacle where God was worshipped. So what about us? What is the center of our lives? Is it the church? Or is it our... Thank you, Jaden. Amen, brother. Who was that? Daphne. I don't see you, Daphne. Show me your face. You're hiding. Hi, Daphne. Okay, Daphne loves to be in church. Okay. Some of us, the center of our world is our workplace, or sometimes it's, I don't know, it's the shopping mall or it's a recreational facility. At the center of the people of God, all neatly arranged according to God's plan, At the center of the people of God is the tabernacle where God is worshipped. And at the heart of the tabernacle, you remember what's inside of the tabernacle, in the holy of holy of the tabernacles is the Ark of the Covenant, which is this wooden box. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant is the Word of God. Okay, the actual literal Word of God that was brought down on tablets from from Mount Sinai. In our reading from Numbers 1 and 2 today, we've read nearly a thousand words this morning. We have this description of the layout of the Israelite camp. And here's the thing about the Bible. If it's in the Bible, it's in there for a reason. Why take a full chapter and a little bit more to describe the arrangement of a portable city of Jews who were living out in the Sinai Desert? Well, because that arrangement actually meant something. People who study public spaces, people who study architecture, wait a second, I need to interrupt. So the most important person in this room is Jesus. Okay, Jesus promised that wherever two or more are gathered in his name, he would be present with us. So Jesus is with us this morning But to my heart, the second most important person in this room is this child back here. (laughs) Rosie, would you stand up? This is my daughter and my grandson. (laughs) Thank you, Rosie. Sebastian Adamson Bruce. Yeah, my grandson. I'm sorry, I'm a little prejudiced. Okay, where was I? People who study architecture, thank you. People who study architecture. People who study public spaces. It's the first time they were been here, okay, so I needed to mention that. People who study architecture and people who study public spaces will tell you that how you arrange things changes your experience of the world, how you arrange your rooms and your hallways, how you arrange your streets and your building has an effect on who you are and how you see life. If you live in a city neighborhood, if you live in old city where you walk to and from work and where you meet people on the street, your life is different from someone living in a suburban neighborhood without sidewalks where you, you know, you Get in, go into your garage and you get in your car and you drive to where you need to go. It's a very different experience. How we arrange our space affects how we live our lives. 
Back during the COVID pandemic, do you remember that? It's so long ago now. Uh, back during the COVID pandemic, we did what a lot of people did, is we renovated our house. Like, we're having to live here now all of the time. Let's make it, let's make it nicer. Okay, so we renovated our house. Originally, we had a tiny little kitchen. We live in an old house, and we had a tiny little kitchen, and there was a little adjoining uh, dining room at one end of the house, and our living room, which was the main room in the middle of the house, uh, occupied the, the, the largest part of the first floor. But when we renovated it, we turned the living room into the kitchen. So we, like, flipped the space and all of a sudden, our house became much more sociable and more friendly. It was a brilliant move. It was suggested by my mother-in-law, right? She, she came up with this idea. It affected how we have enjoyed our house, and we've enjoyed our house more because we've rearranged the space. How we arrange our space affects our lives. Now, you may know that Orthodox Jews do not drive on the Sabbath, and that means that every practicing Orthodox Jew lives within walking distance of the synagogue. And that little fact changes how the community is organized. Imagine if we had the same rule. Imagine if we had the same rule that we had to walk to church. What would that mean? Well, it would mean that we would all be living down the street from each other. It would mean that if some older person in our congregation needed help shoveling snow off of their sidewalk, some younger person from our congregation would be right next door and could help. It would mean that sharing meals and sharing Bible studies in each other's houses would be perfectly natural. It would mean that the conversations that we have across our back fences would be conversations with people that we meet in church on Sundays. When we arrange our living space in a different way, we live in a different world. For these Israelites living out in the wilderness... The center of their portable city was the tabernacle. What if we were to do the same thing? What if we were to arrange our lives around the church? And then maybe you say, oh, that's crazy. That's, like, that's way too extreme, just too much. But don't we, in fact, arrange our whole lives for some reason or other? Don't we make decisions about where we live based on the schools or where our jobs are located or the convenience of the shopping or based upon, you know, I don't know, how old the trees are in the neighborhood? We always use some reason to choose where we live and those choices shape our world. What if we were to use our religious life, our relationship with God, as the reason for all how we organize our world. At the center of the people of God, all neatly arranged according to God's plan, at the center of the people of God was this tabernacle. And at the center of the tabernacle was the word of God. That's what I want us to think about this morning. The Israelite camp, which you know would have had more than a million people in it, was arranged in a square. And on each side of the square, there were three tribes. Three on the north, and three on the south, and three on the east, and three 
on the west, and on each side there was one lead tribe, and there were two supporting tribes. Judah on the east was supported by Issachar and Zebulun. Reuben on the south was supported by Simeon and Gad. Ephraim on the west was supported by Manasseh and Benjamin. And Dan on the north was supported by Asher and Naphtali. And then in the middle of the square, in the open space that was surrounded by the 12 tribes of Israel, was the tabernacle. And then surrounding the tabernacle, on all four sides of the tabernacle, were the Levites who were taking care of the tabernacle and also standing guard. That was the arrangement that God gave. And by the way, maybe you caught it in our reading, God also gave the a lineup for when the time came to move, the kind of the, the marching orders, the, the sequence of the march. All of the tribes, of course, didn't start moving at one time. There were so many of them, you had to organize these things. And there was an order that God established. First Judah, and then the other two tribes on the east would start, and they would be followed by Reuben and the other two tribes on the south, and then the Levites uh, w- would march. They were the ones in the middle. Their job was to carry the tabernacle and all of the equipment. And then Ephraim and the others, two tribes on the west would go. And then last of all, Dan and the two tribes on the north uh, would join the march. When they were in camp, the Levites and the tabernacle were in the center of all the 12 tribes. And when they were on the road... The Levites and the tabernacle were in the center of the parade. Now let me make two little quick sidebar comments here. Number one about the number of uh, tribes of Israel and number two about their flags. If you do the math and you got three tribes on the east and three tribes on the west and three tribes on the north and three tribes on the south plus one tribe in the middle, it sounds like you got 13 tribes which is kind of sort of right, but not exactly. What we call the 12 tribes of Israel are the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and his name is then later changed to Israel. So when we talk about the children of Israel, what we're talking about are the descendants of the 12 sons of the grandson of Abraham. Okay, Those were the 12 sons who ended up going down into Egypt, right? But Jacob, or Israel, for reasons that we can't go into today, gave his son Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph. He gives his son Joseph a double portion of his inheritance. And so the two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, are elevated then to the rank of tribes. So in a weird way, there are 13 tribes of Israel, but sometimes the two tribes that come out of Joseph are called half-tribes. Okay. So the math actually works out very nicely uh, in the wilderness camp because you got three on each side uh, of the four sides of the square, and you have Levi uh, in the middle, making for a total of 13 tribes or 11 plus two half-tribes. Okay, let me talk about the flags. I don't know if you noticed, but all of the families have flags uh, or a special banner. The Bible doesn't actually describe these flags, but Jewish tradition does. Within the, among the, uh, the rabbis, there are descriptions of each of the flags. The flag of Reuben, for example, we're told, was red and it had a certain local flower on it. The uh, flag of Simeon was green and it had a, a city on it. And the flag of Judah was sky blue and it had 
a lion on it, at least according to the tradition. We don't actually know. Now, I think flags are fun. They're very colorful. So maybe you want to think about designing a flag for your family, okay, or for your, your tribe. But let me go back to the main point, and then we're going to close. The end of Numbers chapter 1 and all of Numbers chapter 2 describes the arrangement of the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness. God gave them this plan. He said, set things up this way, and when you go on the march, do it in this order. And the way God set up the camp of his people was for the tabernacle, for the place of worship, to be at the very heart of the community, of their tent city, of their lives. The tabernacle was set up, and then all the other parts of the community knew where they had to go, okay? Notice that when they go on the road, the first thing that happens is they set up the tabernacle. Okay, I know which tribe I'm from, so I know whether I'm to the north or to the south or to the east or to the west of it. I'm from the tribe of Dan, and so we go to the north of the tabernacle. That's my place. Our entire community is organized around the place of worship where I belong, where I fit in, is determined by the tabernacle that's sitting in the center of the community. Now, in our call to worship this morning, which came from 1 Peter, the apostle says to the church, and, and Peter's writing to the whole church, he's, he's writing to the Catholic church, okay, the universal church. Peter says to the church, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people. What Peter says to the church which is made up of people of every tribe and every language and of every nation, what Peter says to the church is also true of the Jews whom God has just rescued out of Egypt. When they were in Egypt, who were they? They, they were nobody. They weren't living on their own land. They were living as slaves, doing someone else's bidding. They, didn't belong, they weren't in their own country. They were not yet a people. They didn't have their own leaders, their own rulers. But God rescues them out of that situation. And in the book of Numbers, we see them in the process of becoming a people. And many, I said this on the first sermon where we began to go through the book of Numbers, that in some ways the book of Numbers is like the Old Testament version of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see the church becoming what the church is. It takes a little while to figure itself out, to sort itself out. And in the book of Numbers, we see the people of God uh, becoming who they are there in the wilderness. They've received the light of God's law, God is organizing them. God is giving them an identity. God, as we heard last week, put his own name on these people. They are Yahweh's people. Same thing happens 
In the New Testament, in the early church, in the book of Acts, God rescues some crazy mixed up group of nobodies. I mean, the people who were involved in the church in the beginning years, these were from the bottom of society and they came from all different countries and they came together and weirdly, they became the most powerful force on the planet. There is no institution that's more important than the church of Jesus Christ. That's just a historical fact. The way God does this, the way God organizes a people for himself, whether or not we're talking about the Old Testament church there in the wilderness, or whether or not we're talking about the New Testament church scattered throughout the Roman Empire, the way God does this is by placing worship, which is what we're doing here this morning, is by placing worship at the center of their lives, at the center of their community. The tabernacle is the center of the camp. And everything in the camp revolves around the tabernacle. What was the center of their life before they went out there, back when they were slaves? I don't know. Uh, maybe getting up and going to work to make bricks for the Egyptians so the Egyptians could have nice buildings to live in. Before they were free, they didn't have an identity of their own. They weren't their own people. They didn't have their own place or their own language or their own identity, but God rescues them and he gives them an identity. He gives them his identity. He gives them his name. We too, as Christians, have a name. We've been called out of every nation and we've been called into a new people. We are a new people. We're a holy nation and a holy priesthood. He begins doing this for these people in the wilderness by giving them the law. Step number one, well, he has to get them out of Egypt first, gets their attention, gets them isolated from the culture that they had been absorbed into. Now I've got some time. So you know, when we come to worship, we separate ourselves from the world that we've been involved in all week long. You've been worrying about stuff. And for this little bit of time, we set it aside. And I'm not, gonna, I'm, not gonna be, I'm not thinking about work. I don't, I'm not thinking about what's going on in the neighborhood. I come into this space and I separate my, it's called a sanctuary. It's a safe place where we encounter God. God has to bring those people out of the culture of Egypt, which was a powerful culture, which was a rich culture, which was a complicated culture, and he pulls them up out of Egypt and he pulls them out into the barrenness of the desert. One of the things that happens when you go to the desert is you begin to notice little things because unlike an eastern forest that's full of trees, the desert is very empty. So you'll notice that little flower. Okay? You'll notice the rocks. There's something about the spareness of the space which brings things to a highlight. And so God pulls the Israelites up out of Egypt with all of its monuments and its wealth and its food and its wonders. He pulls them up out of there into the barren wilderness. And now he has their attention. And what does he do with them when he gets, the, gets their attention? Well, he gives them their law. He gives them the law. It comes down from Mount Sinai. He gives, them their, he gives them his law because the law is the reflection of his mind and his character. The law of God reveals to us the priorities of God. Think about it. Think about some of the things that the law of God shows us. 
The law of God shows us that God believes in fairness for all people. It shows us that God believes in telling the truth all of the time. It believes that God is telling us to be content with what we have and to not want what our neighbors have. God is all about keeping our promises. God is all about honoring our parents and our elders. God is, above all else, about his own glory. And if you're living in a world, if you're living in Egypt where you've been trapped by that culture and you've been overwhelmed by the glories and the wonders and the brightness and the power of that culture, sometimes you need to pull out of it so that I can see God. We have this problem that we've got so much light pollution now in the world that we're not able to see the stars anymore. They have these places that you can go now. What do they call those things? Somebody here, do you know what those are called where you go where it's very dark? They're just called dark skies. So like, they're like places you can look them up on the web and you go to some place out in central Pennsylvania where you can finally see the stars. And you're like, oh my goodness, look what this thing looks like. I think we need to do that with our spiritual lives too. We live in a such noisy, busy, rich, complicated world that we're not seeing Almighty God. We're over, we're, 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 have so much noise that we're not seeing the signal. But when we listen to the signal of God, when we listen to his word, we discover his priorities, and when we meditate on that word both day and night, all of a sudden his priorities become our priorities, and we start to think like God. One of our prayers as a Christian is that we would have the mind of Christ. God is all about his own glory. Here's the great thing about the glory of God, though, is that when we are busy glorifying God, everything else in our life falls into place. When we're busy glorifying God, everything else in the life of the church falls into place. Get our priorities right. No one deserves worship but God, of course. These are things that God had to reveal to the children of Israel by giving them the law at Mount Sinai. Remember that these people didn't have this kind of communication from God before. They had some promises to the ancestors, but you know that's all a very long time ago. And now the law uh, was given to them, and the law begins to shape the mind of the people and begins, begins to shape the character of the nation that's being formed. And that law, I mean, it literally was on stone, was put into a beautiful wooden box called the Ark of the Covenant and it was placed in the Holy of Holies inside of the tabernacle which was in the center of the community. I hope you see the imagery here. I hope you see how God teaches us and remember in Hebrews we read that these things happen to those people for our instruction how God teaches even using architecture and town planning God says something about himself God says something about how we should be related to him by the way he arranges this massive refugee camp out in the Sinai desert at the center of this mob of escaped slaves that God is busy turning into his chosen people at the center of this refugee camp in the Sinai Desert, all neatly arranged according to God's plan, at the center of the people of God is the tabernacle where God is worshipped. And at the center of the tabernacle is the word of God written in stone. 
We don't erase any of it, and we don't rewrite it. So how about us? What's at the center of our lives? What do we organize our days around? What gives shape to our time? I told you last Sunday that my God name, we were talking about God names last Sunday, uh, that my God name might be twice born again prodigal. I only could get three of the four words on here. It says twice born again. It says Dan. That means I, I live on the north side of the, of the building. Okay. Uh, twice born again prodigal. I think that's my God name because I was raised in a Christian family. My father was a pastor. I came to faith as a child. Then I walked away for a long time only to have God grab me by the scruff of the neck through the agency of my wife and to bring me back to himself. For nearly 15 years, I was outside of the church. For nearly 15 years, I had turned my back on the church. I didn't go to church. I was in rebellion against the church. And some of the children who were raised in this church are in a similar state of open rebellion against the faith that they claimed at one point in their lives. It's not good. We need to be worried about this. We need to be praying about this. But when God found me again and brought me back to himself, one of the things that God gave me was a love for his church. And yeah, it's his church. It's not our church. This is where a lot of trouble starts when people start thinking that it's their church. God gave me a desire to be in church every Sunday. And in the 30 years since I came back to Christ, I probably haven't missed more than a dozen or so Sundays. Some strange circumstance prevents me from going to church. My whole week is, is, is out of whack. And that's not just because I'm a pastor because I go to church even when I'm on vacation and I love being in other people's churches and I love hearing other preachers preach and I go to church when I'm in a foreign country and I love being there in that sanctuary even if I don't understand everything that's being said. There is something intensely important about that weekly cycle of Sabbath worship it's part of the Ten Commandments, folks. It makes the top ten list. Once every seven days, we take a break. We stop all the rushing around, and we spend time together with God's people, thinking about God and worshiping God and listening to him, and we spend time with the weird and wonderful mixture of people who are called the church. There are some weird people in this room. You might be one of them. It's nice that some of you have friends at church. I think all of you should have some friends at church. But you know what's even more important than you have friends at church? What's even more important is that some of the people in this congregation are not your friends. That's a proof of the supernatural character of this gathering, that we choose time every week to spend time with people, you know, who are just different 
from us, who've got different tastes in life, who are of different age groups than we're in, who have got different ideas about things, who are from different races, who come from different languages, yeah, and even who speak different, uh, people from different neighborhoods, and even people who speak different languages. That is what makes the church the church and not a club. Now, I also belong to a club. It's called the Rascals. You know, we're all cut from the same cloth. Okay? We're so similar, like you can get rid of one of us and just replace us with the other ones. Because, you know, birds of a feather do flock together. We like to be with our own, but the church is not a club. We're something more than a club. Well, in fact, we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Yes, the church of Jesus Christ is holy. Okay? The church is holy. We affirm this. Is this in the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. We've been going over the creeds in the Sunday school class. Those of you who are skipping that, you're missing out. Dr. Bramer is leading us through the history of, of, of the things that the church has confessed, confessed over time. And we've been, we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed. And one of the things that it says is it affirms the holiness of the church. Yes, the church is holy. We need to honor and to protect and to love the church that God has called us into. The, the church is made up, however, of people who are profoundly wicked. Now, they've been given the robes of righteousness of Christ, but we didn't get admitted into the church because we were righteous. We got admitted into the church by the grace of God. We've been called out of darkness into light. Each week, what the staff and the volunteers of this church do is to try to create a space on Sunday morning to create the possibility of, to create an atmosphere which allows for genuine worship to happen. It's one of the reasons we care about things like whether or not the microphones work. Okay? Thank you, Charlene, for stepping in there and doing what could be done. Because if we can't hear, we can't worship. It's important. We care about those things and we work on those things all of the time. A lot of thought goes into designing the worship service each week. The things that we do here are not random. What we are thinking about as we design the service each week is, will this honor God? Okay, that's the number one criterion, okay? Will this honor God? And in a secondary way, will this help people who've gathered to worship God? So we're always thinking about what ways can we help the people who come out enter into that spirit of worship? We're thinking about that. The worship service is not a show, it's not a concert, it's not a lecture that we attend and that we, you know, analyze or applaud or boo. The worship service, in fact, is something that we all do together. Worship is always a communal project. There are some leaders up front here who uh, help us 
they read scripture. Thank you, Jordan, for reading scripture. So Jordan, for example, reading scripture this morning, I did that because he reads better than I do. Okay? And if I were to read it, you'd, you'd be like laughing, thinking, did he really go to seminary? Uh, can I really believe anything else he's going to say because he doesn't know how to pronounce the names? All right? So we get the guy who's good to read the names to help us enter into worship. Those who are up front here, their job is to help all of us enter into worship by reading scripture, by uh, leading in prayers, by helping us sing. Okay? Christine Boney, who was uh, our song leader uh, this morning, John, John Haynes is, is uh, often our song leader, uh, she, she is singing in a way that's designed, I don't know if you've noticed this about her, so she's not only singing with her voice, but she's singing with her face and with her body. Like she's giving us signals about when to enter and what's coming up next. She's like a little conductor of all of us who are the choir. And then the preaching happens where we attend to the word of God. All of these people who are leading in the service are not performers. And we who are being led are not an audience. There is an audience in worship, and that audience, do you know who it is? Does anybody want to say it? It's God. Hello. Did he hear you singing this morning? When we were having corporate prayers, were your hearts joined together with the person leading in prayer? Were you praying to Almighty God? Are you attending to the preaching of God's eternal word? God is the audience of our worship. Look, you can see him up there. God came to us in Jesus Christ. Maybe that's a visual help for you. This is our audience, God himself. And all around the world, it's an amazing thing, all around the globe this morning, there are people worshiping God. Every language. How many different languages are prayers being offered to God this morning? It's crazy to think about. All of this stuff is coming up to Almighty God. And you know what? He's pleased. He wants to hear our worship. He deserves our worship. And we were made for worship. Our lives are off kilter if we don't worship. Weekly participation in worship makes our family life better. It makes our work life better. It makes our marriages better. It makes us healthier and happier in general. There is plenty of scientific data that shows that people who would attend church regularly, live longer, and report being happier than those who don't. I really do believe the CDC should act on this data. You want to extend the life of Americans? Mandate going to church. And I think part of the reason is that in worship, for just a little while, we take our eyes off ourselves. If you're really worshiping, you are not worrying about yourself. You're not worrying about how you sound or how you look or what people think of you. You're not even worried about how the preacher or the choir sounds because your eyes are not focused on 
those people, they're focused on God himself. When we worship God, what goes on here in this beautiful sanctuary is all designed to take our minds off ourselves and far beyond this room to the very throne room of Almighty God. One day we're going to spend a long time with him. We're going to be worshiping him day in and day out. We're preparing for that time here. When we worship on a regular basis, it keeps us sane. It keeps us balanced. It reminds us of what's important and what's not important. We need God at the center of our lives. And if we have God at the center of our lives, you know what? The rest of it will be better. We need God's word at the center of our worship. And if we do that, the rest of our lives will begin to make sense. We need to put the worship of God in the center of our lives. And if we do that, the rhythm of our week will begin to become beautiful music. I'm really glad that you're here today. I'm really glad that Sebastian is here today and my favorite son-in-law Josh Bruce how are you feeling yeah <laughs> he's been suffering a little and Sebastian's mama it's good to have you in worship we've missed you I'm glad you're here today and I love being in worship with you guys and I look forward to more and more people being in worship there are a lot of people who presently do not have God at the center of their lives and they're suffering because of that. They're missing out. You have a flavor of what it's like to have God at the center of your lives. There are friends in your life who don't. Bring them. You have family members who are estranged from the church. Bring them. All of us, I mean every human person, needs for our lives to revolve around God. And one of the practical ways that happens is in weekly worship. Let's pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you. We thank you for making it possible for us to be in this place. Thank you for all of the hands that have gone in to making worship uh, practical this week. All of the volunteers, all of the staff hours. Lord, I thank you that we can worship you even when the sound system doesn't work right. Even when the preacher can't read the Hebrew names. Lord, I pray that you would continue to draw us to your heart and may we, may we discover who we truly are by worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.